again, and welcome to episode 85 of Bee Boomer Unleashed. I'm Jerry Lake, the Unleashed Baby Boomer, and I'll be your host for today's episode and all the episodes of Bee Boomer Unleashed. Today's episode will start a series looking at eating habits through the decades. Looking at eating habits through the decades, and my, haven't they changed over the years. Before we get into that discussion, let me remind you where you can always find our podcast. You can find us always at beboomerunleashed.podbean.com. You can find us on iTunes and Google Play at beboomerunleashed, on iHeartRadio at be.boomerunleashed, on Facebook, Spotify, and Instagram. You can find our link at beboomerunleashed, and on Twitter, you can find our link at beboomerunleashed1. And as always, we encourage you to drop us an email at beboomerunleashed at gmail.com. Once again, that's beboomerunleashed at gmail.com. Tell us what you think about the broadcast, suggestions for future broadcasts. And as always, if you'd like to be a guest on the Bee Boomer Unleashed podcast, we encourage you to drop us a line. Tell us what you'd like to talk about, and we'll do our best to get you on the podcast. Well, before we get into today's episode 85, uh, I'd like to just review a bit. Uh, Last couple of weeks, uh, last several weeks, if you will, we've been talking about socialism, and my, my, have we gotten the comments on that. And there are a lot of people out there that are concerned about socialism and about how it's permeating our culture. And that, uh, in particular, a lot of the new millennial generation is you know, really um, proposing that we adopt socialism as a way of life. And for you old-timers out there, and I'm one of those old-timers, certainly that's not something that we can allow to happen. And uh, But, boy, there is a move afloat. We need to pray for our country. We need to pray for our president. We need to pray for the upcoming elections in November, probably the most important election in my lifetime anyway and it's not a matter of democrat versus republican we're voting for a way of life we're voting this november to determine whether we're going to be a socialist nation or whether we're going to continue to be a nation of opportunity and a capitalistic nation so uh, that's what's at stake. That's what's coming up. Uh, we'll be talking more about that maybe as we get closer to that November election. Uh, if anybody else would like to get come on the Bee Boomer Unleashed program and talk about socialism, like I say, or any other topic, certainly you're welcome to do that. Just let me know what you want to talk about, and we'll try our best to get you on the show. Well, today I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about uh, an article that was written by Lori Mealy. And the title of this article is History of American Restaurants in the 20th Century. History of the American Restaurants in the 20th Century. Now, when I was a kid growing up, and I was born in 1950, which makes me squarely in the B-boomer or the baby-boomer generation, Um, we didn't eat out much. There weren't many places to eat out, and, of course, we really couldn't afford to eat out. We ate at home. Mom cooked the meals at home, and we sat around the dinner table at about 5 o'clock every evening as soon as my dad got home from work. 
there was a hot meal waiting to go on the table, and it wasn't a, a fact that Dad was going to slide through the drive through window and bring home a Big Mac or something for dinner. That, that didn't happen very often. There was a little old drive-in restaurant close to where we lived and where I grew up called the Snack Shack. And uh, the Snack Shack was a little hot dog stand. In Huntington's, we have the famous uh, Stewart's Original Hot Dogs, and we have Frost Top, and we have uh, uh, Midway Drive-In. Those were drive-ins back uh, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s where you could go get a root beer and a hot dog or whatever. Well, the Snack Shack was a little place about like that, and you drove up and you ate in your car. And that was a really special treat to get to do something like that, a hot dog was 15 cents, 15 cent hot dog. That was, um, you know, I first started remembering going there probably in about 1961, two, three, somewhere along in there. And hot dogs were uh, 15 cents and a a mug of root beer was a nickel. So, you know, for a bag of potato chips was five cents. So you could get a bag of Snyder's potato chips, a root beer and a hot dog for a quarter. But quarters were kind of hard to come by in those days, so we didn't go out and eat much. But there were a few restaurants like that around. There were some mom-and-pops joints, I know, in Huntington, uh, Jim's Steak and Spaghetti House, still in business to this day. And you could go in and get a plate lunch. You could get spaghetti or steak, or you could get a fish dinner or whatever. And um, you would, and then they had pie, etc., for dessert or cake. And uh, there were a few restaurants like that around. A lot of the old hotels had restaurants in them, but you didn't have these big chains. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about these chain restaurants as we go through this discussion here. But uh, today, it's kind of unusual for people to eat at home. Now, during this COVID pandemic, more people have been eating at home than ever. A lot of people have had to learn to cook rather than to go home and, and bring it home in a styrofoam box. But uh, that, and that's been, that's been pretty interesting. But uh, this uh, Lori Mealy uh, wrote this article back in March of 2019, and I'm going to read some excerpts from Lori's article here about, really she talks about the history of American restaurants in the 20th century. Now, of course, we're in the 21st century now, aren't we? But most of us were born, uh, well, as old-timers anyway. We were born in the 20th century. I was born smack dab in the middle of it. Lori says by the end of the 19th century, 19th century, that was the 1800s, right? So by the end of the 19th century, Lori says that fine dining restaurants had become a part of the landscape for wealthy, aristocratic Europeans, and upper-class Americans. So restaurants were something not for the working class. Restaurants were designed for the aristocracy, if you will, the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts and people like that who could afford fine dining. Now, fine dining and the dining we have today, two different things. Fine dining, you have tablecloths, you have cloth napkins, you have a meal that's served by course, uh, soups and appetizers and salad and 
the main course and dessert and you know all these kinds of things brought out in course and it's it was a social experience if you will um, they um, uh, transformed eating out uh, Lori says into an art form and it was it was quite an art form it was quite a big deal to go out and you know you didn't go out to a restaurant and and uh, cut off blue jean shorts and flip-flops. You didn't do that. You went in a shirt and a tie and a jacket. A lot of restaurants, unless you had a tie and a coat on, you couldn't be served. And women didn't come in in slacks or uh, crop tops. They came in in a nice dress, Sunday go-to-meeting dress, if you will. But these groups, they transformed eating out into an art form. And through the 20th century... Restaurants continued to evolve through two world wars and the Great Depression. Now, imagine during the Great Depression, there wasn't a lot of people going out to eat. They were just trying to find a nickel to buy some potatoes and cabbage or something to get something to eat. Well, the 1950s, 1950s, that's when I was born, 1950, right on the button. And she says the 1950s saw the rapid growth of fast food while the 1960s marked the beginning of casual family dining and chain restaurants. So the 1950s, introduction of fast food, hence the hot dog stands that I was talking about. And you had the Snack Shack, you had Sturt's Original Hot Dogs, you had uh, Frost Top, you had Midway, you had uh, Fat Boy, you had Wiggins. There were a lot of um, fast food type restaurants where you sat in your car some of them didn't have a place where you could even go in and sit and eat. Uh, you had to eat in your car or get it to go and take it home with you. So you could get a sandwich. You could get a hot dog or a hamburger or a barbecue. I remember here in Huntington, Wiggins' famous barbecue. Boy, was that a good barbecue. And uh, you could get that uh, and you could sit in your car and eat. Uh, but then in the 1960s, we have the beginning of casual family dining. Well, what's casual family dining? Like Logan's and Olive Garden, places where you could go in and you didn't have to have a coat and tie. You could go in and you could sit there in your Bermuda shorts and your flip-flops or whatever, and you could eat casually. You say, well, why did you need casual dining? Because nobody wanted to cook at home and people were making more money than ever. We were through the Great Depression. The unemployment was uh, very minimal. People had a pocket full of jingle, and they wanted to go out and eat out. That was a big deal. By 2000, more and more families were dining out on a weekly basis. Well, now it's not a weekly basis. You've got people dining out every day of the week. They never eat at home. They dine out. You know, eating at home was a big deal when I was growing up. And I've mentioned that on the show before, on the podcast before, that uh, when 5 o'clock rolled around or whatever time Mom established for dinner, we were expected to be there with our hands washed and um, sitting there with our feet under the table to eat dinner together as a family. We don't have that so much anymore. You've got people going in all these different directions, and families are so convoluted that you have this uh, situation where uh, you're not really uh, eating together as a family. Uh, 
You can go to a restaurant now, and of course, with the pandemic, not many people going to restaurants now, but they're, they're starting back. They've got tables spaced out and people are eating. But you can go to a restaurant and see a family of four sitting at a table. They're not engaging in conversation. They're all on their cell phone. They're all texting or playing games or or uh, whatever they might be doing. They're looking at Facebook. They're looking at Twitter. They're looking at Instagram. They're taking a picture of their meal to post it on Facebook. They're not really having that fellowship time, and I think that's been extremely detrimental to American families of not being able to have that time around the dinner table to talk about the day's events and, and talk about family matters. So more and more families began dining out on a regular basis, whether it was weekly, whether it was twice a week, whether it was every night, whatever. By 2000, more and more families um, became the normal family by dining out rather than eating at home. So that, uh, that's where that's evolved to. Well, in the 19th century, she tells us that the rapid growth of travel through the 19th century, thanks to railways and steamships, meant that more people traveling greater distances meant an increased need in restaurants. Um, Building on the early success of fine dining restaurants in Paris, a new style of dining became the norm in Europe and the United States. Patrons dined at private tables, chose their meals from an a la carte menu, and paid their check at the end of the meal. So we had this... People came in, they had their own private table, table for four, table for six, table for two, whatever. And if you were a regular patron at a restaurant, uh, they knew which table you wanted, and that was your table. And they uh, they brought you in there. So um, that was, kind of, like I say, that's when it kind of became an art form. Now... During this time, there were lots of advancements in science and technology which influenced restaurants. Those advancements during the early 20th century directly influenced the restaurant industry with the discovery of germs. (laughs) You know, we really didn't know what germs were until probably the 20th century really uh, got figured out that, you know, eating raw chicken might kill us or something, you know. But uh, with the discovery of germs and the link between health and hygiene, a greater emphasis, she says, on cleanliness led to the rise of two popular hamburger chains. Now, I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but one of them was White Castle and one of them was White Tower. (laughs) Yeah, those White Castle sliders, right? But the White Castle and the White Tower, their interiors were all white, back in the day, the color white. And so they made it all white, and that was meant to reassure customers their food was prepared in a safe, modern, sterile environment. What color were hospitals? White. What color did nurses wear? White. What color did cooks wear? White. What color did waitresses, waitresses wear in these restaurants? White. So the white was an indicator that uh, you were in a situation or you were in a place that was clean and sterile. Uh, 
So uh, that was a that was a big deal. Then we have something called the franchise restaurant entering the scene. The biggest change in the restaurant industry, she says, during the 20th century came with McDonald's. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but McDonald's was originally a hot dog stand. It was owned by two brothers from Illinois. They switched to hamburgers in 1948. Uh, They took a cue from Henry Ford's assembly line, if you will. Uh, The McDonald's brothers began offering the fastest, cheapest food possible, and they did that by employing low-skill workers to assemble it. While the brothers were successful at serving uh, their food efficiently and inexpensively, they weren't too good at franchising. They didn't know how to do that. They didn't know the gold mine that they had there. So a restaurant equipment salesman by the name of Ray Kroc saw the potential in the McDonald's concept, and he bought out the brothers in 1954. And the rest, as you say, is history. His formula for franchising set a precedent for fast food chains changing the landscape of American dining. Now, you can go to McDonald's, and you're not going to find the best food in the country. It's edible. But a Big Mac in Huntington, West Virginia, tastes just like a Big Mac in San Francisco, California, or Topeka, Kansas, or Detroit, Michigan, or Dallas, Texas, it all tastes the same. So this franchising meant that everybody was going to get a consistent product. Unlike the mom and pop's places, you might go to one and the hamburger would taste this way. You go there and they use a different kind of beef and um, you didn't know what you were getting and, and all this was different. But McDonald's franchising set the bar for consistency. Now, I didn't say it set the bar for quality. That's not to say I've never eaten at a McDonald's. I've certainly, over the years, consumed lots of McDonald's food like everybody else uh, has in this country. But it's not the best food in the world, but it's consistent. And that's what people were looking for as they became more mobile and they traveled around different places. They wanted something that Uh, they knew was going to be consistent. Now, I used to drive my kids crazy when we traveled when they were growing up, and we would be on vacation somewhere, and and I'd be looking for a place to eat, and they were also, let's go to McDonald's, let's go to McDonald's, let's go to Burger King, let's go to the, oh, no. Dad, here he goes. He has to find a mom and pop's place, and I've always been that way, and I do it to this day. In an emergency, when we're out of town, I'll eat at a franchise restaurant. But if I'm out of town, I want to eat at a mom-and-pop's place. But most people aren't like me. They're not crazy like me. Well, through the 1950s and 60s, more franchise restaurants began popping up. Uh, Some of them had ethnic themes like Taco Bell, you know, Mexican food, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Southern food, Pizza Hut, Boy, boy, Pizza Hut. Indeed, pizza took the U.S. by storm in the 1950s. I had my first pizza. My Aunt Vita 
made it. They were from Princeton, West Virginia, and they were in for a visit. And she brought with her a box pizza. It was a Chef Boyardee pizza in a box. And you had to make the dough, and you put the toppings on it, and the sauce came all in that box. And uh, you could probably buy the thing for 79 cents or a dollar back in the 1960s. And, you know, when Sherry and I first got married in 1973, we couldn't afford to go out for pizza. So if we had some friends come over, you know, a big treat for us, we'd pop up some popcorn, which was cheap, and we'd have a Chef Borardi box pizza, and we would make our own pizza there. Uh, in the oven rather than going out and spending probably back in that time a pizza was wow it was probably three dollars back then if you went out to eat it but you could get it for 79 cents in a box but pizza took the country by storm and pizza hut knew that this was going on so they uh, indeed uh, started this trend of franchising uh, pizzas today pizza is considered as american as apple pie And Pizza Hut was the first to perfect the assembly line pizza. Imagine that, assembly line pizza. And uh, they're all pretty good at it. Now, they even have conveyor belt ovens where each pizza is is baked for the exact amount of time. You don't have to worry about it staying in the oven too long. You're going to get consistency because that pizza travels along that conveyor belt on that... uh, um, in that oven, and they're all baked to the exact same consistency. And Pizza Hut was kind of a, a pioneer in that area. Then we have, uh, by the 1990s, we had a lot of what's called family casual dining. And uh, many families headed up, they were headed by two working parents. You know, mom was no longer a stay-at-home mom. Very few stay-at-home moms for the 1990s. So the shifting consumer patterns there uh, brought an increase, if you will, in the number of people eating out. Mom was too tired to cook when she got home because she'd been working all day. Dad had been working all day. Dad was too tired to cook or or, uh, argue with mom about cooking. (laughs) So chains like Olive Garden, Applebee's, Uh, they catered to the ever-growing middle class. So the middle class was getting bigger and bigger, offering moderately priced meals and children's menus. Kids' menus, that was important because your kids, if you had one or two or three or seven kids, well, how do you take them to a restaurant? Well, they had kids' menus, and back then you could probably eat a kids' menu for a dollar. And they're still cheaper than the adult menu. And some restaurants even offer kids eat free on Tuesday or whatever, so they all show up on Tuesday. Um, and the family-style casual dining continues to be a popular concept today. Now, during that time, there was a bit of backlash from the public. During the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, Americans' weight waistlines... <laughs> Increased right along with dining out. So there was a cause and effect. People started eating out more, and guess what? You started packing on pounds. You started packing on pounds because you were eating a lot of processed food. You weren't eating fresh food, and it was prepared um, to taste good. So 
probably wasn't as healthy as it could be. So as the obesity epidemic continued through the first decade of the 21st century, public health agencies called on restaurants to reform their menus. Reform those menus. Give us heart-healthy choices. Critics blamed restaurants. Huge portions. You know, I remember and very few times we went to a restaurant when I was growing up. You got a modestly portioned meal. You got one helping of whatever it was. It was on a small dinner plate. You ate that, and when the waitress came by at the end says, uh, what would you like for dessert? It wasn't, do you have room for dessert? Is what would you like for dessert? Because there was a small serving, and you had room for a little bit of dessert with an extra cup of coffee. Well, now they give you such huge portions, you have to take half of it home, take half of it home in a styrofoam box, and when they say, does anybody care for dessert, you're going, oh, my gosh, where would I put it? So, you know, public health agencies called on restaurants to reform their menus. Critics blamed restaurants, huge portions, unhealthy foods, high in fat and sodium for the obesity crisis that plagued America. No, that's part of it. Absolutely, that's a part of it. But it's the fact that people decided not to eat at home anymore and prepare their own meals and go out and eat this tasty, unhealthy stuff. Some people, you, got, you just got to take, you know, like I say, recently my heart blew up. On May the 3rd, I had a total heart failure. On May the 5th, I had four bypasses, an aortic valve replacement, and an aneurysm on my left ventricle repaired. I wish that I had made healthier choices. Now, I'm not going to lay any of that on my wife because my wife's a tremendous cook, and she's a healthy cook. And uh, But it was me that wanted to be the recreational eater. It was me that wanted to go out and eat all this greasy stuff that was no good for you. And I wish I had been a bit more like my wife and eaten healthier. Now, since surgery, I've lost about 38 pounds, but I do not recommend open-heart surgery as a weight loss plan. I recommend you get in control of that before it gets out of hand. But uh, we made these unhealthy choices that were high in fat and sodium, and this obesity crisis continued to plague America. Many larger restaurant chains began offering healthier menus, healthier meals. They uh, improved children's menus with the introduction, uh, with the introduction of menu labeling. More and more restaurants were seeking healthier choices to include on their menus. And then finally we have the farm-to-table movement. Along with concerns about the health of the food being served, many Americans were focused on where their food was coming from. Where is it coming from? you shipping this in here from China or Korea or someplace? In its annual What's Hot Chef survey, the National Restaurant Association reported that one of the top ten trends at that time in 2011 were local and organic foods, indicating that consumers were more concerned than ever about what they were eating. And that continues to grow today, people making healthier choices, wiser choices. And I know since my heart uh, failure, I've certainly been trying to make wiser choices in uh, eating less sodium, uh, eating less fat, and all that kind of stuff. So... Anyway, 
Well, that's about all we have time for today. Now, in our next episode, we're going to talk about some of those franchises and what they've what they've done over the years and where they've come from and and just put you in remembrance of some of those. It's a long, long list of franchises, and we'll make some comments about them as we go along. Then on the next episode, we'll start talking about nutritional value at some of these restaurants and how it's changed over the years. And along about that time, I hope to get my dietitian friend in to talk to us a little bit about that. Well, hopefully you've enjoyed this little walk down memory lane and and uh, this article that I've shared with you by Lori Mealy. Thank you for writing that, Lori Mealy. It's a good, uh, good article and good to put us in remembrance of kind of that chronology, if you will, of American history of, or the history of American restaurants in the 20th century and uh, the history of some of our eating habits. Well, until we meet again, I hope you have a great week and may God bless each and every one of you. Goodbye.